Hey folks, welcome back. I'm your host, Ty, and this is episode three of The Virtual World, a podcast about software, technology, and VR. In this episode, I sat down with Adam Davis, a well-respected software engineer who I met through Jay Helton. If you haven't checked out the previous episode where I interviewed Jay, please do. If you have any questions or want to come on the podcast yourself, please reach out to me on Twitter at TYTR underscore dev. As always, please enjoy the conversation. All right, folks, today is July 8th, 2020, and it is 5.56 p.m. EST, and I'm sitting here with Adam Davis. Uh, This is someone that I met through Jay Helton, the person that I interviewed on the last episode of the podcast. Uh, He he had nothing but great things to say about Adam, uh, and I'm really excited to be sitting here with you. How's it going, man? Going great. How about you? Yeah, not bad. I can't complain. How's uh? So you started at Semantic Bits pretty recently, right? Yeah, it wasn't too long ago. I started in February. Nice. Yeah, I actually I left a couple of months after that, and I was with them for almost four years or so. How are you liking it so far? I I love the company. Uh, I love the you know the the, the tasks that they have us on. Uh, you know, most of the contracts are are directly tied to the government, so the vagaries of working on government contracts can be challenging at times but the work itself and the company are great yeah for sure i've I've found that they are they're extremely genuine and they're also extremely fast moving like one me and uh, another guy ben mcmean who worked there for years as well and was my tech lead for a long time we were talking on the first episode of the podcast actually about the fact that they kind of crank out more in a sprint than a lot of companies oh yeah by far we're one of the one of the uh, engagements that they have me on is actually working with another through another contractor, and it's kind of funny because they're talking about whether or not they can get things delivered by November, and it's, it it makes me and some of the other guys on the team chuckle. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting too because a lot of the times the answer to that question for these contractors is probably not right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and to be fair, sometimes sometimes it has nothing to do with your ability or willingness as a, as a worker or as a contractor or as a company. I mean, sometimes the reasons you can't get something done by November is because of the bureaucracy of the federal entity that you're working under. Oh, absolutely. One million percent. Um, there's When I was working with Semantic Bits, I was on the same project for almost four years, and we were working for CMS, and CMS definitely... They kind of step on their own toes a lot. I would say 90% of the issues that we had with velocity and productivity were just because of issues with the business. Absolutely. The same, same experience here. <laughs> so uh, I'm curious here. Um, you know, you're from Jacksonville. I was born and raised in Jacksonville. And up until I worked for Semantic Bits, actually, I had never worked remotely, um, except for a, a couple of little things, you know, like little contract things or... Um, I guess freelance work is how you'd really classify it. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, um, what do you think about Jacksonville from the perspective of a software engineer looking for specifically local employment, someone who's not reaching out to try and find a remote position? Uh, well, if you're looking for local employment in this in Northeast Florida, I mean, there's certainly a lot of opportunities. Um, uh, you know, of course, I, my opinion is going to be anecdotal, but I have been living here for 20 years. So, and I've, I've worked for a lot of companies. Um, the majority of the companies I've worked for have not been remote. They've been in the Jacksonville area. So I have some decent experience in that regard. And specifically, I would say that um, 
you know, this is an overgeneralization, but it, it's always seemed to be a very heavy .NET shop. I don't know why, but, you know, .NET town, I should say. Um, or Java, but it's kind of the same principle of Go. Java, when you're when you're talking about about the real biggies, you know, Florida Blue, Bank of America, etc. They do a lot of a lot of Java work. Uh, but for it seems to me like for a lot of the the mid-sized companies in town, there's a ton of .NET C sharp work, and not that there's anything wrong with that by any means. But uh, now, of course, in the last I don't know five years or so, just like the rest of the world. Front-end development has taken more of a of a primary position in the corporate hierarchy, and and there are certainly a lot of jobs in in Jacksonville that you can get doing React, Angular, Node, etc. Um, but it, but in terms of the, the the bigger shops, you know, doing more of the kind of heavy-duty stuff, it seems like yeah, there's you know Java and the really big companies, and then a ton of .NET. Yeah, for sure. Actually, all of my Funnily enough, for me, all of my local employment here in Jacksonville was either PHP or really, really heavy enterprise Java. Yeah, I, you know, I've I've been I always like to say to people that uh, I I think I've been doing PHP longer than anyone you've ever met, and that's not a humble brag. But the first time I installed PHP was in 1997, um, and it was at a time when I had. I was using a virtual private server, and at that time, it was one of the first companies in 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 the world that actually had VPS technology. It was it was new then because prior to that, you had to you know all they had was shared hosting, and you really couldn't put any programming in place because they didn't have any of the controls in place that that they needed to make sure that your crappy code didn't take down the rest of their hosting customers. <laughs> But anyway, I, I, uh, I digress. I was talking about PHP, but I, now I, I have actually I've been doing it for twenty three years, um, but I, I've rarely actually done it as a, a formal job activity, just because um, I like PHP. But it's unfortunately a lot of the you know the, a lot of times when you get contacted for a PHP job, it's that somebody somebody wants to know if you'd be interested in being their WordPress administrator for 50K. And I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, definitely I'm not. not. I'm not going to do that. But Cool. Um, so I'm curious, uh, do, you have, do you have any particularly glaring horror stories about working in Jacksonville that you want to share, like, you know, particular team lead or particular project <laughs> failure? <laughs> Oh gosh! Feel free not to if you don't want to. If you don't want to burn any bridges, I get no. It. I've got. I've got a. You know. I mean, I won't bore you forever with it, but I could probably spend hours on it. Uh, um, I uh, just last year, I was working for a place here in town that uh, this isn't specific to Dev, but I mean, it definitely made my life hell. I was. I. I. I, I took this job, and I found out pretty quickly that I was working for a group of people who were openly and overtly racist and uh, sexist. And uh, I, I definitely got out of there as fast as I could, but on a more, you know, tactical dev specific level, uh, you know, what, what are the, one of the biggest horror stories I had was literally from the end of last year, because I left that, that job with the racists so that I could, uh, to contracting at Florida Blue on a team. I thought it was going to be pretty cool. You know, it was, it was a React team. They have Java backend, but, but they really they wanted me to come in to work on the React front end. Um, 
as you can imagine, Florida Blue tends to pay pretty damn well when you're on a contract. And I thought, okay, this is cool. But the the team, the tech lead, the team lead, whatever whatever you want to call him, he turned out to be a, an absolute nightmare. And uh, the specifically, it was one of these types of shops where uh, they couldn't keep any senior devs. The senior devs just kept cycling through, no matter how much they paid them. And then I, I asked him one day, I said, you, you, you don't wonder why this is? <laughs> you, you never question why you can't keep any senior devs? They, they couldn't be bothered to implement um, any kind of uh, style guide, any kind of ESLint rules, uh, which is fine. I've worked in plenty of code bases where there are, there are no ESLint rules. But then they wanted to nitpick every, uh, every pull request over line by line uh, stylistic choices. And then you say, well, how am I supposed to know what I'm supposed to follow? They say, well, we'll just look at the existing code base, but the existing code base wasn't consistent at all. So you could find places in the code base where they'd done it this way. So I'd do it that way. And then they'd say, no, and I need to change it back to this way. And they had a whole bunch of arbitrary, silly rules. Some of them were just silly. Some of them actually were counter, counterproductive. Um, you know, they, they told them, me and his friend were working there, and they told my friend that uh, he's writing React with arrow functions, which isn't exactly the newest, hottest, craziest trend in, in React. I mean, you know, they've been using arrow functions in React now for, what, five years, six years, something like that. I don't know. Uh, they said, oh, we only use arrow functions in the reducer. And he's like, what? why <laughs> but, but we only use them in the reducer and and they I, I was doing a string comparison and they said no you need to make that a regex like wh why would you invoke the regular expression engine so that i can compare strings that makes no sense <laughs> and they did this over and over um they had a, you know other systemic problems as far as the you know the, I, I worked on a team where everyone else was remote but they didn't want, they wanted me to come in and sit there every day, even though none of the rest of my team was there, <laughs> but they wanted me to come and sit there every day. Uh, they didn't have a desk for me. They had me literally sitting on a table at the end of a, of an aisle. Um, and none of the other team members were even there, but they, for some reason I had to sit there. So. Eh, yeah, that's whatever. wild. Yeah. I, I, could, I, could, I could even go on with them, but you know, it gets, gets repetitive after a minute. <laughs> I can uh, I can bleep these guys' names out if you want me to, but I'm curious. What are your I thoughts on availability? I don't care. I mean, <laughs> oh, what was what, uh, what was my thought about what? Availability. Just because um, I went there for a like a little tech conference meetup thing uh, for just it was just an hour or two, but um, the building kind of blew my mind. Just because all the places I've worked in Jacksonville have either been they've been huge businesses that have a really tiny tech team that's kind of like tucked away in a small office or mm -hmm. they've been a completely, you know, a shop that's completely focused on software that is just a lot smaller. So kind of walking into availability for the first time and seeing just the scale of the building, I mean, it's like walking into a bank. So what are your thoughts about them and, and do the premises reflect their, uh, their actual development practices? So, uh, yes and no. You know, I worked there for several years. Uh, I worked there before they opened that new building, and I was there when we moved into that new building. Um, as you can imagine, for any kind of tech shop of that scale, they have some incredibly talented people there, um, some great minds. And I certainly 
you know, the, the pay is pretty, pretty good. I've made more, but I mean, it's, that's quibbling. Um, and you get to, depending on what team you're on, you definitely have the opportunity to work with some good tech stacks, you know, some, some new stuff. Um, but I was extremely happy to leave also, um, when I, <laughs> that, that new building, you know, it's so big and, and, and it's all bright and open. Oh, this is so great. We have an open floor plan. Well, first of all, I, I guess, I, you know, I'm old and crouchy. I don't care about an open floor plan. I, I really, when I start coding, I don't want Joe coming over and asking me about the game last night. And, and every time I've been, the more open the floor plan is that I, where I'm working, the more people I have coming by my desk every 12 minutes, even though I have my headphones on, even though I'm paying them no attention, even though I have a deadline I'm trying to meet. And they just seem like they've decided that they have to talk to me right now about something that has nothing to do with work. <laughs> and then we got to the new building and they would literally schedule these. Uh, they had my desk sitting next to this, this, what did they call it? Like, like an innovation area or something. So people would literally come and sit next to my desk at random intervals during the day and start having meetings. Not meetings that had anything to do with me. They just start having meetings. <laughs> and one day they yeah, even had this, awful. yeah, one day they had this developer like group conference meeting, like where they got everyone together. And I, I didn't know it was actually happening until I came back to my desk from, from another meeting I was in and they had speakers set up that were straddling my desk because they had decided that the next day, this big open meeting was going to essentially be centered on my desk. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. So there were a lot of, there were a lot of things that, that struck me as very contradictory there. There were, there was a I've lot heard of, uh, through the grapevine, uh, the people that I've talked to about it, I've heard that their bureaucracy is a big issue. They're very political and there's a lot of people at the top that uh, don't want to see you do well just so that they could kind of stay in the spotlight. Well, they, I was really struck when I first got there at the fact that if you spoke up and said something, I don't mean if you want to, I don't mean if you popped off, I don't mean if you swore at someone, but I mean, if, if you just said, you know, I, I don't know, this doesn't seem like a good idea, this direction we've taken, or should we consider other alternatives? You could, you could get a manager coming over to you the next day saying, you know, you, re you really shouldn't talk like that. You really shouldn't bring that up. And, and again, you know, you'd sit there and think, well, wait a minute, I wasn't rude. I wasn't yelling at anyone. I, I was just saying, you know, this doesn't seem like a good idea. Well, there's another time and place for that. You really shouldn't bring that up. So well, what's like, the time and place then? If not <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then the, the, there's a lot of security theater that goes on. Are you familiar with that term? No, I am not. Okay. So because they, they are owned by several large health insurance companies and, and they contract with many others, of course, and they're, they're trafficking in healthcare information, some of the most sensitive data that you could have. Of course, they have to have a lot of security controls and, and audits and, you know, check all the boxes, which I totally understand. But then they would, um, they'd have a lot of hoops for you to jump through that literally did nothing at all to secure anything. I mean, you know, if you're even a, a, a mid-level developer, you could look at these, these things that they were having you do and you realize this doesn't secure anything. This doesn't actually solve any problem. 
but you still had to do it religiously every day because it was an exercise in box checking to show that's why I call it security theater. It doesn't actually provide you security, but it, but it puts on a really good show. Uh, and then what really was one of my last straws was uh, I found a very severe security hole that I will not describe here. <laughs> and I knew from talking with my manager in the past that if I just brought it to him, it would go nowhere. So I did something. Or you get reprimanded. Well, yeah. So I, I did something I had never done my entire time there. I, I sent I sent it to him, but I copied our director and our VP because I couldn't afford for this to just be, you know, not seen in someone's inbox. And a week goes by, I don't hear anything. Two weeks goes by, and finally the director sends me this kind of perfunctory email where she says, thank you for pointing this out. We're definitely going to look into this. Three months later, when I left, the security hole was still there, and it was egregious. <laughs> so it made me realize that there was just a lot of lip service going on. It made me very disappointed in where I was working at. Damn. Yeah. So I have a, there's some, there's some stuff about diversity we can get into in a minute. I, I read your, your blog post. Actually, you know what? Let's, uh, let's just segue to that. So I read your, I read your blog post. Um, I, let me see if I can, if I can do that. We should, we should probably plug your blog as well. Sure. <laughs> uh, let's see. Adam Nathaniel Davis. So you can find him on uh, dev.to as uh, Adam Nathaniel Davis and He's, he's got a ton of content. He's, he's honestly, I don't know how you have the time to write this much, but I call it my, my, uh, my free self-administered therapy. Yeah, no, I totally get that. So you recently had, uh, I think it was in June. Let me find it. The unbearable whiteness of coding. And I like really strongly agree with a lot of the content in this, uh, in this blog post. And we've been talking about it a lot on the, uh, on the podcast as well. And then I made my way to the comment section and I was just <laughs> kind of blown away at some of the things that I found there. So I'm just going to give you the soapbox now. Like just what are your thoughts and what do you have to say about all this? Uh, well, first of all, it might help for your listeners just to do a, a really quick synopsis. So I, I, I had written that uh, I've been in development for you know decades and I've been specifically working in Jacksonville for 20 years in coding. And... Um, and all this time, you know, I've, I've moved around fairly heavily, you know, from one job to the next, kind of skipping around a bit. So my point is I've been involved in a lot of dev shops. I've been involved in big companies like Availity and Florida Blue. I've been involved in small startups. Uh, and, of course, I've had the, the, the honor of, of working with some incredibly intelligent people. And I've easily worked with a few hundred developers not just in the same company, but I mean, on my team at different times, people that I was actually, uh, people who, who I was actually collaborating with. And out of all that time in Jacksonville, um, in terms of the number of guys I've had on my team or people I've had on my team uh, that were black, the number is one. It's been one person. Now, now to be clear, now if we expand it beyond my team, or we say, well, what about BAs or QA or you know other people involved in in the development process? There's certainly been more than one black person at the companies that I've worked with, but in terms of my interaction with several hundred developers over the course of two decades, I have worked with exactly one black developer, and if you look, that may not sound. Uh, 
out of the norm, depending upon, you know, who's listening and where they're from. But in Jacksonville, the black population is 30%. 30% of uh, almost a million people in Jacksonville and they're, that are black. And yet, for me, having worked in all these companies, uh, you know, I've worked with one black developer, and if I count, you know, a few of the other black guys I knew who were developers, but just not with me. I mean, we we're talking about two or three people in my entire career here. So anyway, you asked about the comments. And, and actually, funny, funny story. My, uh, my number there is actually lower. I've, I've worked with exactly zero black developers. And, and I think that, yeah, I think that's a very, you know, and that's part of why I wrote it. If I thought it was just my odd experience, like, well, I, I, for whatever reason, I've only, you know, for some reason, I've never worked with a bunch of black developers. I, I probably wouldn't have thought anything of it, but I've been around this town enough to know that in this regard, my experience is pretty indicative of, of the overall development experience in Jacksonville. Um, and certainly, I think probably most places too. Yeah. I mean, of course, you know, it fluctuates somewhat. I'm not going to say that, that those percentages hold absolutely true through every American city and through, or especially not through every country, but, but it's, it's definitely, um, not unique to Jacksonville. Yeah. And I, I, what I found was that, uh, this was the, this is the type of article where a lot of people like they, they understand the premise from, you know, either the title or the first couple of sentences and they've already made up their mind. In particular, I thought it was interesting that uh, I don't know almost every point where I saw somebody really strongly disagreeing with you uh, was something that you had like directly addressed. Um, <laughs> there was there was someone who said something. I'm let me see if I can find it really quick. Uh, I want I just want to have the wording correct. Um, I can't, I can't find it, but the point is that the, somebody said something like, uh, this doesn't reflect how other countries are. Like you're, you're acting like America reflects the, the reality of the world everywhere. When I think like the third sentence of your, your article was, I understand that this doesn't reflect how things are everywhere. Yes. And I had even, I had even gone so far as to say that, uh, you know, I'm really only speaking about my city right now because even in America, I'm sure that, you know, somebody could, uh, you know, be in a more metropolitan area like New York and say, well, you know, I've had 20% of the people I work with have been black, you know, developers. And 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 I wouldn't discount any of those. I mean, I, I wanted to make it clear that it was, even though it's based on two decades plus of experience, it is still one man's experience. Um, I don't pretend to have done a scientific study. Uh, and, you know, I, I wanted to make it more about it sounds wrong when I say it more about me, not, not the issues, not about me, but it, you know, more about my experience. But to, to your point, yes, a lot of people, it's kind of funny because when you read some of the comments, um, you know, some people just seem to jump in uh, quickly. Either they didn't read it, which is actually not that uncommon uh, or they read it. And they don't care because they still feel a sense of having been attacked over it, or they still feel a sense of, you know, their ideas of, of social activism have been offended by the fact that I, you know, I even bring this up, you know, one guy put that I am part of the problem, which I thought was funny because I said in my article, I said, yeah, I understand I'm part of this problem. But of course, you know, he kind of tried to throw it back at me like, you know, well, you know, this, you're part of the problem because you're pointing this out. You're part of the problem yeah, because you're this, writing an article like this. I don't understand. Honestly, this, this is one of the viewpoints that really blows me away the most right now. It, the people that are saying that, uh, you know, by observing your surroundings, 
if your surroundings have any sort of racial tension to them, like in this case, then you are part of the problem because that observation somehow inherently promotes racism. And it's like, that's the dumbest thing I think I've ever heard. Well, and, and I've, I think it's dangerously naive because um, if you take that stat I just gave that in Jacksonville was 30% black population. Now, I don't pretend for a second that any particular career field in Jacksonville will skew to be exactly 30% black. You know, that's, that's just not the way demographics work. Um, so if you're, I think I put this in one of the comments I, I put as a response to someone in that article, I said, you know, if, if the population is 30% black and the development, the developers are 26% black, I wouldn't even be writing an article. Right. Yeah. You know? This is it, the skew is is monstrous. Yeah, but the fact that we have a population that's thirty percent black, and yet anyone who's been doing application development in Jacksonville can tell you that it's almost non-black. You know, it's 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 hard to find black developers, uh, and I you know I in the article itself I tried to highlight the fact that you know to me this is. This is not an issue of just saying, oh, well, these companies should hire more black developers or hiring managers should look for more black developers. It's not that simple because there's a systemic issue at play here. Because if I go out and put out a rec for a new developer in Jacksonville, and I gave this as an example in the article, because I've done a lot of, I'm, I'm kind of in pure dev right now, but for years I was in management. So I've done a lot of hiring in Jacksonville. And if I go put out a requisition for a new dev, it, it's not beyond the pale to think that I might get a hundred resumes. And of those hundred resumes, of course, some of them you'll never know what nationality or ethnicity they are because it's just a name on a piece of paper. But for those people who come in and, and interview, uh, it's not uncommon to think that of those hundred resumes, 80% probably or more will have come from men. Um, and then wh whether we're talking men or women, uh, probably 60 to 70% of them will be from white people. Um, and then there will be another 20 to 25% that are definitely are from non-white people that could be, uh, of course, a lot of them are Indian because that's a huge part of the IT sector is Indian, right? Um, but you're also going to have Asian people who are applying. You're going to have Lat Latinx people that are applying, et cetera. Uh, but the number of people that you find that have applied who are black uh, are vanishingly small. So even if you decided, look, I really think that we should hire, you know, we should make an, a concerted effort, if at all possible, to extend more development opportunities to blacks in our company. Well, that's kind of hard to do if you put out a hundred resumes and only five of them came from black folk, right? Because if we just took it randomly, then that means there's a one in 20 chance that the most qualified candidate was one of those black people who applied. For sure. And this, it mirrors exactly my experience in Jacksonville as well as a college student. I went to college at UNF. So, you know, probably not more than five, 10 minutes away from some of the places that you work. Sure. And, the demographics there was it was basically 98% white guys and most of them come from really affluent backgrounds which isn't a bad thing but it, it is important and uh, I've talked a little bit about that as well even at semantic bits I had some weird conversations where people were you know very very strongly anti-welfare 
And I was just kind of like, man, I only ate as a kid because of welfare. And I'm, I'm here giving back to society in the same ways that you are. Although, of course, that's kind of tangential because um, even with something like Semantic Bits where people are doing good work and they're, they're doing it kind of like morally correct, at, you know, of course, knowing that that's relative. Uh, but uh, technically speaking, there is a, a huge opportunity with a company like Semantic Bits to save money from or for the government by taking these contracts from people that aren't going to do it correctly or aren't going to do it in time. Kind of like the the contractors that you mentioned earlier that are like, can we, you know, get these features implemented in the next six months? Yeah. Right. Um, whereas yeah. at Semantic Bits, that conversation would be like, okay, we've got three weeks, let's get it done. Um. So I, I guess my point is that, uh, yeah, my experience has been largely the same and, and women are probably in the same exact boat. Like there are just so few uh, female developers. Although I will say in my experience, it, it has been a, a much larger percentage than those who are black. Well, and, and my, my anecdotal observation there for what it's worth is that I feel like in the last, I don't know, three to five years, there has been more of a push to get more women, of course, young women, especially into the, you know, programming fields. Uh, and it feels to me, again, this is very anecdotal, that it's at least making some headway. I have not seen from my little vantage point, the same successful push by any means to get uh, black people into those same venues. Um, and, you know, the you know, the, the alt-right crowds and such, they'll say, well, what does it matter? You know, it's all merit-based, but but it's very myopic. Well, yeah, in my opinion, that is a that argument does not hold up under scrutiny because if you talk about uh, the merits, then you have to talk about how people acquire those merits, and that is where you begin to uncover the s systemic issues that are facing Black folks, folks in achieving those merits in the first place. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I am in many respects, the, you know, the stereotype of like the, you know, the ideal people want to have of the so-called self-made man. I, I didn't go to college. Uh, I've been doing programming now for more than 20 years and I, I make a very good living, but, um, and I have an associates that I got basically without going to classes, <laughs> but I, I never, I never actually took a computer science course. I certainly don't have a computer science degree. I don't have a bachelor's. Uh, my point is that everything that I've done, I've learned just from literally getting on the internet, getting on my computer and figuring it out. But even then, even in that simple statement, you know, there's a lot that's baked into that. The fact that I've almost all my life had a computer, the fact that I have worked at jobs where there have been computers readily available, the fact that I have had, you know, whatever were the best internet speeds available at that time, uh, you know, uh, you know, all sorts of different societal factors uh, that ultimately boil down to things like privilege that have, they haven't lessened the fact that I've done most of this quote unquote on my own, but they have allowed me, they've given me an opportunity that I could seize. For sure. And I think, I think the interesting thing is in, from my experience, again, and this is completely anecdotal, um, privilege while skewed in favor of white folks uh certainly when you talk about it from that perspective um i don't think it, it's definitely not as it's definitely not as clear-cut um for instance i myself am uh, i grew up very very poor in a kind of a terrible area in jacksonville i first lived in the west side then i moved to the north side and i only got i got lucky 
with going to college. I got a full ride from a local company that was, I shouldn't say company, they're an organization uh, that was giving out scholarships to people who, you know, had, who didn't have as much, you know, financial privilege, but also had some halfway decent grades. They, their requirements were actually extremely lax. And uh, on the flip side, and I've done really, really well in computer science. Um, same, same as you. And so my, my best friend who is black grew up very wealthy and has kind of struggled to build himself a career in, uh, in the same regard. So I think it's, it's interesting that, uh, it's a lot more complex than just does someone have access to these tools or not? Well, there's also a lot to be considered on the idea of, you know, development across the country, at least being very heavily a white space or a male space. Um, and again, you know, there are some directives that are working to change that now, but it's slow. And, you know, white people tend to uh, dismiss these ideas. Uh, like, well, what does it matter? You know, job's a job, and if they're paying well, you know, who cares if it's a white space or a black space? But, you know, you take those same white people and you say, well, let's go hang out at this bar tonight. And then you walk in, and they're the only white person in the bar. How do they feel? I mean, some some people some people would say, "Hey, I, I'll have a good time. I'll hang out. That's cool." Some people, whether they want to admit it or not, would be uncomfortable. Some people, even if it was the best bar in town that had the best drinks and the the best band, they wouldn't go back again uh, because they just wouldn't feel like it's a welcoming space. And I I know that to some extent, even when we're trying not to do this. We create spaces in corporate America that are equally as uninviting to people that are not like us. Right, for sure. I think we we could probably talk about this stuff forever, so uh, maybe we should <laughs> yeah. move on just, just to make sure we cover some of these other topics. Sure. Um, I'm curious, uh, before we jump into sort of like the state of the industry, uh, what is your current tech stack of choice? Like if you were greenfielding a project for yourself, and you know you just wanted to get something up quickly but also have it be well built let's say that you you projected kind of a slow incline but you knew that you could eventually have millions of users on this platform so you you needed it to be robust but also you know just kind of the most sane possible what what would your tech stack look like sure so i've from from my early career when i was doing almost all back end development because you know, in the early 2000s, if you were writing any quote-unquote real code, it was all back-end. There wasn't no such thing as a front-end app. But nowadays, I am almost exclusively front-end development. It's definitely, for whatever reason, it grocks with me more than other uh, paradigms. And in terms of the actual tech stack, um, I have become quite the React fanboy. Uh, I love that framework. Of course, JavaScript in general. Uh, I've been writing about the fact that I've, I'm I'm tinkering with TypeScript, but I don't really like it. <laughs> I'm much more of a, a traditional JavaScript React person. Uh, I would definitely stand it up with Node services, uh, probably Express, just to get the, the endpoints out quickly. Uh, and then, I guess because of my background and my age in the industry, I still have a certain uh, affinity for relational databases. So, you know, I'd probably have my Node database, or my, excuse me, my Node uh, server connecting to a Postgres, uh, Postgres relational database. And those are fairly easy to, uh, 
to scale out. You know, you can you can put an array of node servers and a and a bank of web servers. And, uh, you know, load balance that, and uh, you could run into some. I guess if you got really big, you could run into some headaches if you need to start parting out. Uh, you know, replicating the database and such. If you wanted to go really large scale, then you know beyond. When you when you start to break the limits of Postgres, I'm much more of a SQL Server guy than I am Oracle. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Um, <clears throat> I I used to be a React developer, and then uh, I I've been kind of drinking the Svelte Kool Aid lately. Yes, um, <laughs> although I hate I hate the name with a passion. That's what it's one of my <laughs> the big things I talk about is the name is just awful. I've I've been I've been kind of I don't know I guess. Staring lovingly at Svelte from a distance, um, it looks very interesting to me. The only thing that you know, I I I have not actually gotten in and written a bunch of stuff with it because I, I'm not a bleeding edge adopter. Um, I look at these other technologies all the time, but it you know, assuming it's not something as simple as hey, try this npm package. You know, that's easy. You download it, you play with it. If you don't like, it, you uninstall it. But it, when it's something as 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 severe as as a different language or a different a different framework. Um, it takes a lot to get me to actually dive in to, to do a big project in it because, you know, I, I did jQuery for years, even beyond, you know, long after it was cool <laughs> because, you know, when they first start hearing about some of this other stuff, I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Like, do I really want to switch everything over to that? And, you know, I'm pretty proficient at jQuery and, you know, it, I'm not the first guy on the bus to jump off and say, okay, let's go do that. But uh, so with Svelte, I've definitely been looking at it. I can't really claim to have built anything in it yet because uh, I, it would, beyond just tinkering with it in my local environment, I need to have some compelling case to make me say, no, this new project's going to be done in Svelte. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I've I talked about this on the first episode as well. I've definitely, so developers can be largely broken into two categories when it comes to choosing technology choices. Um, and then there's, of course, there's a a massive slider between the two. The the hard left, I would say, is the hard starters, the people that are like, oh, no, we totally need to rewrite this project and this new framework that came out yesterday. And mm -hmm. then you've got the uh, the hard right. It's like, I just want to use Cake PHP 2.0 and I'm never <laughs> upgrading. And like, I don't care about the security vulnerabilities. I just want to stick with what I know and, and not worry about it. And uh, I've been known to suffer from my slider dragging to the left <laughs> a little bit in the mm -hmm. past um, with Svelte. It was, it was kind of that moment where it was like, Oh man, a new thing, um, something shiny. And so I picked it up and messed with it a little bit, but legitimately the development experience is just better <laughs> than I think everything else that's, uh, that's ever been around in the front end space. I, I still hate the name and I don't <laughs> think it's perfect. I think there's a couple of quirks that are kind of weird. Um, but as far as a component framework, I think it's as close to ideal as we're going to get, at least as far as um, like if you're approaching building a front end application from the perspective of, you know, this is just HTML and I'm trying to serve HTML and you know HTML really well, then it's probably the most ideal framework to work with. Um, I'll tell you, though, you know, it's funny because when you talk about frameworks like that, I will freely admit that, you know, it's one framework can just kind of fit with you it can it can you know it immediately makes sense and you think okay that's awesome and then other times uh we're all guilty of this at times you can see something and maybe it has a ton of merits but you have these hang-ups 
Yep. Uh, AKA, and, I can I can summarize this in uh, two words. Fuck Angular. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the funny thing is when I started, I was looking at Svelte for a long time. And then, I don't know, I think, I think it was right before I, I got to Semantic Bits. So I had some free time in January. And I started, you know, really thinking, oh, maybe I should build like a, you know, a pilot project in this just to see. And I started reading through it. And it starts talking about templates. And as soon as it starts talking about templates, I went, oh, no, I hate templating engines. And I, I'm not saying that, that Svelte is a templating engine, but there's this like this deep-seated, you know, like in Availity, they had all this crap that was using handlebars. And it was the dumbest, jankiest implementation. It, it was using handlebars in the middle of Angular. And I'm like, why? Why, why would you do this? And, and I, I actually found out why they did. And it's a long, boring explanation, but it was a horrible excuse they didn't even need it but um the point is that i you know we get hung up sometimes on these silly little things like i did with the templating thing now it doesn't mean that i've thrown felt on the scrap heap it doesn't mean i'm not gonna you know go back to it again in a month or something and play with it some more it just means that sometimes you can get hung up on these things you know i saw this in react where one of my big pet peeves is people who want to yell down the people who write class-based components and oh, oh my if, god yeah, I've yeah. written several long diatribes about this. And oh my gosh, if you're not writing a function-based component, you're stupid and you're old and you're an idiot. Uh, you know, and if you're writing function-based components with hooks, you you are a React god. And it's like, yeah, don't be I wrong. had an experience hooks. where I, I was asking something on Stack Overflow and I had provided a code example and I was trying to solve a problem. And the the first like four responses were just like, oh, you should be using hooks, not this garbage. Yeah. I'm like, I, you know, that's first of all, this is on React because they change up the core API like every six days. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm with you. And, and I'm actually doing now, even on my home base development, uh, pretty exclusively just functions and hooks. And, uh, and it has some benefits. I'm not going to sit here and trash it, but, but I, it took me a long time to get to move to it partially because I didn't like the people who were telling me to move to it, meaning that the people that were telling me were just telling me, just do it because the stuff you're doing is stupid and this stuff is cool and you should be doing it this way. And like you said, like you'd, you'd ask some tactical question, like, hey, how do I do this thing? And instead of helping you at all, they're just like, you should use hooks. Why don't yeah, you use sure. functions? And uh, that I did eventually get help, so it's not it's not all bad news. But <laughs> yeah, I had to wade through a bunch of like explaining how I, why I didn't know about React hooks. Which I mean, at the time, the update that had released React hooks, which I had not heard about at this point, I it legitimately was like eleven days old. So I mean, there were people eleven days into React hooks that were legitimately shaming me for not having been like on top of things. And I'm like, man, I got a code base to maintain. I got features to implement. I'm not trying to upgrade packages right this second. I had this experience because I was at, uh, at Availity at the time when they came out. They came out in October of 2018. So they're, they're only, they're not even two years old yet. Uh, and this guy who sat next to me, a friend of mine, he's a better JavaScript developer than I've, I've ever been. And he was been doing React longer than I had been. But I'm sitting here, you know, working on my React stuff. And he comes in one day, he's like, oh my gosh, you got to see this. And he's showing me, you know, the announcement on reactjs.org and, uh, you know, all this other stuff. And I'm looking at the descriptions and I'm looking at the tutorials and I said, 
yeah, whatever. I mean, like, it's not that I didn't see how it was working. I just didn't see how it was in any way better. It just seemed like, look, there's a completely different way to do the thing you've always been doing. And I thought, yeah, for sure. why, why do I care? And actually, this is going off on a tangent, but you might appreciate this. So I, I can't believe that this is still up on the React site. But if you go look at... You can link, you can link me stuff here in the chat. Oh, okay. So yeah, I'll, I'll find it here. So if you go up and you look for the hooks documentation, and I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you the link here when I see the explanation for it. Um, introducing hooks. I'll put this in here. Hooks intro. And uh, where's my window? It's right there. And chat it. Okay. So here's, you know, this, the day that they introduced hooks, this was this was part of the the new introduction, and it's got the video with Dan Abramov, you know, uh, introducing this at the conference, and everyone's cheering. And then you know you read down, and it's it says you know motivation. Why do we even have hooks? Number one, it's hard to use re, it's hard to reuse stateful logic between components. Eh, okay, maybe uh, complex components become hard to understand. Oh, that's true. Then don't write complex components. Um, but then here's the one that just blows me away. This is on the React site on, the, on why to use hooks. And it's in big, bold H1 text. It says, classes confuse both people and machines. And I looked at my friend who, who had already, like within minutes, become a, a hooks fanboy. And I said, I said, you realize if you walk into a job interview, even if it's a job interview for functional programming JavaScript, if you say to them, I can't really answer that question because classes confuse me, they're gonna You're end the hired. they're gonna end the interview. They're gonna thank you for your time. They'll say, Don't call us, we'll call you, and you'll never hear from them again. Absolutely. Um, I actually I don't I don't want to get into it right this particular second, but before we get off, I do want to talk about I'd seen that you said you had a lot to say about how to properly deal with state management without ridiculous things like Redux. Um, so I want to I want to get into that a little bit at some point. But um, actually, we can get into that now. But I think the the big takeaway from this segment of the conversation is don't use Angular and you'll be fine. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. So you want to talk about state management? Yes, state management. First of all, uh, do you do you think that observables have merit? Because while I hate React, I do think observables are kind of like the meta about front-end uh, state, um, but I'm at least reactive things. Uh, but outside of that, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are about, about state management. And let's try and keep it React agnostic, because I think a lot of it really applies across the board. Sure. So, uh, you know, observables absolutely have merit. Um, I think the only issue there that is that observables start to get very they get conflated with data binding and with things like two-way data binding, which seems to have become like this boogeyman. There are people that still have nightmares about knockout JS. And apparently some people wrote some really bad convoluted code bases and they couldn't track where these, you know, events are getting fired off. Um, I'm not saying that that's, that's what observables means. I'm saying that too often those concepts get conflated. Um, but on a deeper level, uh, you know, 
I'll keep, I'll, I mean, I want to be react agnostic, like you said, but you know, I've been doing a lot of react lately. So bear with me if I use some react yeah, no, no, specific speak, terms, whatever you got to do to, to get your point across. When react first came out, uh, there was really only one way in the, 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 the codified texts <laughs> for you to pass information between components. And that was through prop drilling, uh, you know, passing data through props, which they refer to pejoratively as prop drilling. And you can read through the docs for about three minutes before you start to think about, okay, if I wrote this massive application, like the one we have at work right now in this tool, I'd have to pass these props down through dozens of layers of components. And that just seems untenable. So then they start using state management as a way to share data, which pay attention to what I said there, because state management doesn't necessarily have to be just a way to share data. State management is managing state. But a lot of times people say, but I don't have anywhere else to stick this value. So I'm going to stick it in my state management library. And regardless of what framework you are accustomed to using, um, you know, state management libraries then can become their own quagmire. That's where For you For sure. Get really quick, I want to tangent about, about NGRX. So um, recently, I, I have this idea for an app that I'm working on, and this is, I'm actually using Sapper for this. Sapper is kind of like the Next.js, Nux.js version of, of that, like, sort of uh, static framework thing for mm -hmm. Svelte. Okay. Um, so, you know, you get a lot of nice things, like it does routing based on the file system, and, you know, you can do some server stuff if you need to. Um, it's really cool, uh, but I, I do kind of hate it for different reasons. That's a whole other topic. Before mm -hmm. I started implementing it with that, and I had already implemented my personal website with with Sapper specifically because it is a static website, um, not dynamic at all. And I was just trying to learn Svelte. So I have this idea for an app, and it's basically trying to bring musicians together at a local area. Of course, COVID kind of like <laughs> yeah. definitely throws, throws a bit of a wrench in that. But besides that, um, I, I was like, I, I really want to get into the mobile market. I want to be able to release this on iPhone and Android without having to have this huge code base. I don't really want to learn Flutter. So I just kind of ended up with uh, Ionic. And my biggest gripe with Ionic was, oh man, it's Angular. But, you know, maybe I, I had one of those moments where I said, maybe I don't hate it because it's bad. Maybe I hate it because it just doesn't resonate with me properly, like we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. So I spent, I don't know, four weeks, five weeks implementing this thing. And it was just, it was just issue after issue and just banging my head against a wall. And uh, I finally was like, you know what? Fuck the mobile market. I'm going to, I'm not using <laughs> Angular. And so I ended up re-implementing it in Sapper and legitimately to get to the same exact point, it took me like four hours. Right. And it was just so much easier and so much better. Uh, and so uh, the reason I mentioned all of this at all, I'm just remembering is uh, when talking about state management, when I was dealing with the, the Angular code base, I was having some trouble with, with state management and kind of sharing observables between different things and, and whatnot. And I kept running into these weird issues and I thought, man, I'm definitely just not doing this properly. I understand that. So like, I'm going to try and find a way to make it more structured so that I can just kind of follow a pattern and you know, eradicate the ability to make mistakes by just kind of doing it air quotes right. So I ended up looking at NGRX and oh my God, that it, that has to be the most bloated <laughs> library I've ever seen. Like they, in order, to, like their their first their intro to it. And Ben talked about this a little bit on the first podcast. Their intro to NGRX, like first of all, it chastises you for not being like a, a lord of state management, and like kind of is like, how dare you do things this way? You have to do them our way. 
And then their their introduction to how do you create state for like this simple array of things that you need to track. It requires you to create seven new files and a new mm -hmm. module. And like, it's just ridiculously complex. Well, here's a general rule of thumb that I've, I've just recently figured out that, uh, that makes me hate some of these technologies. Because I, I knew I hated some of these technologies, but I wasn't sure why. And it, and it kind of clicked in my head, actually, with some of the blogging that I've done. And that is that, you know, we all have frameworks that we work with. Almost no one nowadays sits down and just writes, you know, plain JavaScript from the, you know, uh, free JavaScript or free C Sharp. I mean, it's all some kind of framework that we're working in. And that's great. I mean, I like frameworks. So, you know, some of them I like, some of them I don't. But I've noticed that, like, with React, for example, React is a framework. I don't think it's just an NPM package. It's not a library because, you know, Moment is an NPM package. I can install it or uninstall it. But really quick, though, do you, do you think it's an application framework or do you think it's a component framework? That's a good point. Uh, I mean, I, I definitely say it's an application framework, but I understand why some people would say otherwise. And, and the reason I say it's an application framework is because it's a hierarchical component framework, which, you know, the hierarchy is your application. Uh, now I know that, you know, you can set there up. There are some things missing though, like some core things, you know, routing and whatnot. And these things are solved by the ecosystem. And so right. I think the React right. ecosystem is fantastic. But when you're just looking at vanilla React, there are some weaknesses if you're trying to, if your goal specifically is to take one package and have a full application framework. Well, I agree. I mean, part of the, part of the, the beauty, but also the problem with modern JavaScript development, and this applies to almost any, you know, paradigm you're using is that, some of your ability to excel and, and move fluidly through that environment is based upon your inherent knowledge of packages. So, you know, you could sit here and say, wow, you know, this, this, this tool I saw really stinks and I don't ever want to use it again. And someone says, well, did you use this other package in, in conjunction with it? And then you realize, well, if you use that other package in conjunction with it, the two in, in combination may have been wonderful. But unless you know that, or unless you, you know, unless you found the right stack overflow link or whatever that tells you to do that, sometimes you never realize it. And, and, and so your point with uh, routing, uh, now, you know, React Router is pretty fairly ubiquitous, but it's not part of React. It's not part of, you know, the core library. So, But of course, but, it still does a really good pro job of solving that problem. And if you're working with React, you're probably using it and you're probably not having any issues with it. Bingo, bingo. But what I've noticed where I was going with that though, with the frameworks though, is that when I start to get really frustrated and annoyed is when someone else says, hey, you know, whether it's your Angular project, your React project, whatever, hey, have you tried this cool new thing, whether it's state management or whatever it is, go use this. And then you go use it. Maybe it's NGRX. And then you go, you know, you install it and you start using it. And then you realize this isn't, a tool. This isn't a library. This is another damn framework. It's a framework that literally sits inside my other framework. So now I have to I'll constantly have at least two frameworks going simultaneously and constantly be jumping back and forth between them in terms of paradigms. This is why I hate Redux. I, it took me a while to realize this. Is it because I hate shared state management? No. I mean, there's a time and a place for shared state management. But Redux isn't just shared state management. Redux is actually its own inner framework so yep. when you start and that's thinking, basically ngrx is the yeah the implementation of redux for for angular using observables and honestly 
I keep saying that it stands for not going to really exist in five years. <laughs> that that could very well be. I, I hope. Know, I hope it doesn't. I've really come to believe uh, that with React, at least specifically, that the whole idea of it used to be five, four, four or five years ago, nobody built a a React application to scale that didn't also have a state management tool baked into it. Usually, it was Redux, but you know, there's there's others. Uh, and it was almost considered like it's just not untenable to build an application like that without an explicit state management tool involved. And now with with hooks, you know, even though I said I had some some consternation there about coming along, but with hooks or with the the new context API, um, I really seriously question anytime someone reaches for a state management library because and, and don't be wrong, I'm sure that you know there are some times when you say no. This is a time when we need a state management library, and those those scenarios exist. Which... I, to be honest, though, I think that you know using some fundamentals now, you combine promises, you combine observables, and you just put some structure to it. You could probably make a much thinner, much smaller, much more efficient state management solution of your of your own that does the same job and is less confusing. And that's basically what I've done talking with hooks. about. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, that's that's how I would go about doing it. I'm doing the same thing right now with the the Svelte stuff. And the Svelte, Svelte has, it kind of has these hooks, but they use observables. And the nice thing is that they've got this auto, awesome uh, syntax that you can use by putting a dollar sign in front of it that allows it to automatically compile your use of observables into some more, you know, uh, idiomatic code. So you can just use a dollar sign instead of doing anything like subscribing and unsubscribing. And it just knows how to handle that, which is, I think, really cool. But the point is, yeah, me and Ben were talking about this on the first episode of the podcast, where basically it's kind of insane when you put a bunch of Angular experts in a room and tell them to build like a to-do app, they are going to come out with like 7 trillion lines of code. It'll yeah. work really well. <laughs> It'll be super efficient and there won't be any bugs, but it will be a ridiculous amount of code. Yeah. I, I totally feel that. I mean, you can now to be fair, you know, sometimes when I'm doing like a to do that to do app, I can crank out a lot of code too, but that's not because I necessarily needed it to run the app. I just have like this, my own, I guess, base that I typically install now if I'm doing a, an app from scratch and it will have all these kind of helper functions and everything that I know I usually need anyway. But, but yeah, I totally get your point. I mean, you know, you've, you're trying to just crank out something simple and somebody says, look what I built and it has 50,000 lines of code. It's just, sorry, overkill. I think my, I think my audio disconnected there for a split second, but yeah, for sure. I, I totally agree with everything you're saying. So, uh, my, how, how much time do you have, by the way? I don't want to keep you too long. No, I'm, I'm good. Okay, cool. Um, what is, so what are your thoughts on, I don't know, sort of, sort of the current state of the industry and I mean, I think we've talked a lot about that at this point. We're kind of in framework hell where a lot of people are like, oh my God, Angular is the only way. And there's a lot of people that are like, oh my God, React is the only way. Now you've got the new people that are kind of like, oh my God, Svelte is the only way. I totally am kind of, I'm leaning into that category. Like if I had to choose something that wasn't Svelte, it would 1 million percent be React. I've got a lot of experience with React and I love it. But I'm curious, um, what are your thoughts about the changes coming to the industry in the next five to 10 years? specifically? compilation steps during build process uh things like rust and WebAssembly, and of course um uh, was it, do you think that our industry i guess i can ask this question later because this is a lot at one point but um 
Do you think that our industry will at all suffer from sort of the wave of automation and things that people are talking about sort of, you know, coming in the next five to 10 years? Well, I'll take the last end of that first, because um, there is no wave of automation coming in the next five to 10 years. And I say that because I'm 47 years old almost, and I've been hearing about the wave of automation coming in the next five to 10 years for 25 years. Um, so every time somebody, uh, I mean, I saw this like with Ruby, <laughs> when Ruby on Rails came out, everyone's like, oh my gosh, I can build all your apps, you know, everything that you're, you're spending six months to build, I can build in a week. And you can with Ruby on Rails. You can build, but you have to build it exactly the out of the box way that, that Ruby on Rails wants you to build it. As soon as you want it to change at all, as soon as your business analyst says that you need to have this extra feature crammed in, as soon as the CTO comes in from his plane ride and says, you know, I just had this new idea. Now, all of that ability to crank out something or automate something uh, in minutes or hours goes back to have actually having to write code. Because there is no way, you know, there, there's a funny little um, conundrum you run into. You say, well, code is hard. It's really, you know, how do we, how, it's trying to get it right and trying to get all the business rules and everything. Can't we create like some kind of, uh, you know, like a form builder or something and a, and, a, and a workflow engine and, you know, these things that would help us to essentially create apps without having to write code. And you can do that. You can create a form builder and a workflow engine. I mean, these things have been done before. And you can start to find these ways to build menial apps without having to write all the code. And that's cool. But then as soon as you start adding more and more and more requirements and edge cases and little things that are, you know, well, marketing says they have to be able to have this special promotion that's not accounted for right now. And, you know, now we need to be able to do this, this weird one-off data transfer that happens once a month between one of our business partners. Well, the more you realize that to make that generic tool do what you wanted to do, the most efficient way to do it is just to write the code. The most efficient way to write complex business logic is not to build an engine or a tool or an AI that will somehow crank it out for you. The most efficient way to do it is actually to write the code. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. It's it's interesting because I feel like I feel like you are like on the hard opposite side of where I am on this, where like in my free time, I'm like, I'm actually actively working on sort of one of these engines that you're talking about where actually it's funny because I am too, but <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I'd love to talk about that at some point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I kind of, I agree with you on both fronts, but I, I do think that there will be at least a shift and I, th I don't, I'm not sure if it'll happen in the next five or 10 years, but I sort of foresee this point where front-end development starts to kind of become normalized, you know, and you can see it from, from the evolution of the jQuery days to AngularJS, which to give them credit, they sort of did. I think they released the first real application framework just for front-end where it had like all the things that you needed to make, a, make an application. And it introduced a lot of really good ideas. And of course, React came in and uh, kind of shit all over those ideas and improved <laughs> them a lot. Um, and then of course, Angular 2 came out, which has nothing to do with Angular JS, which is fantastic. Of course, for the business people that have to, or for the, for the programmers that have to explain to their business team that upgrading to version two is not a, the click of a button. Um, but yeah, so the point is, I, I feel like in the next, I don't know, I, I don't want to put a time frame on it, but I do feel that front end development is becoming more and more and more standardized. Like we're figuring a lot of things out. And just in the last five years, observables have really taken off. And I, I think that at some point, 
Maybe not, but at some point we probably will all settle on some sort of paradigm. Well, and I, I don't disagree with you. I think, I think what happens when, when things get, when the stuff that was hard yesterday becomes easy or easier today, it doesn't necessarily mean the people who are doing the hard stuff go away. It just means that they go on to, to the next level problems. And it means that, that there's a lot of potential apps that could be built out there that no one will build today because they'd have to, they'd have to, you know, pay a team of developers a lot of money to get that thing built. So when you, if you create a ton this, of, there's a ton of options out there already for there are. that sort of like WordPress or, you know, Squarespace, like they, I feel like they hit a lot of the points for the, the more simple stuff. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, you know, I just think that knowing the way businesses run, they always seem to have another one-off requirement on top of, an, you know, and then as soon as you get that one done, they say, okay, but now we have this other one-off requirement. Uh, and as long as they keep in that mindset, there will still be a lot of work for people like you and me. Um, for sure. I've been saying for years that, that uh, Agile has just become an excuse for the business team to not know what they want. Right, right. And, and, you know, I have, I have advised some of my past employers, like, like at one place I left and they said, well, you know, what should we do when you leave? I said, don't back, don't backfill me. And they're like, what? And I said, yeah, don't backfill me. And, you know, or, or if any of the rest of the team leaves, don't backfill them because everything that we're, we, we've done the hard stuff now, everything else you need done, you can, do, you can get done by buying a tool that already does this. So, you know, but, but. For, for companies that are in that mindset of, you know, they've, they've hired developers before uh, and they have a team, it's hard for them to get actually out of that mindset of, well, we just have to build everything from scratch. For sure. And I can understand that. Um, I think WordPress nowadays is, is kind of a good example because it's become like its own industry almost. And you've, the company itself, I mean, they have what, like 1,200 employees or something that are all doing development? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny because I was just advising my uncle the other day because he, he said, you know, I want to, he's not, he's not techie at all. He said, oh, you know, I want to build this app and I need to do these few things. And who should I talk to? You, you know this stuff. Like, should I hire a developer? And I said, I said, hire someone who does WordPress. And I don't think he understood at first because he's like, well, I don't want to blog. You know, and I, I said, well, you know, and don't get me wrong. WordPress has <laughs> more than its share of faults, but WordPress has such a huge ecosystem and it really is on many levels an application framework. If, if, you know, I, I wouldn't want to build the next project for my, you know, current employer in WordPress, but, but if you wanted to get out a reasonable amount of functionality in a pretty dang short period of time, and it doesn't, everything doesn't have to be customized to the nth degree, you can do it in WordPress and, and, and save oodles of money. Absolutely. Uh, I saw the name of a, of one of your, your um, blog posts and of course I didn't have time to read it, but I'm curious. Uh, I'm curious what it was talking about. Cause I feel like that kind of is something that we're getting at here is something about uh wheel JS, the future of JavaScript. I, <laughs> I kind of assumed that there was a joke hiding within that, uh, within that blog post. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I keep wanting to actually, actually build this, but you know, at a certain point, you say, how much time do you have for, for your own jokes, Adam? But me, what, that guy that I said I used to work with at Availity, he was really big into React. And he, he on one level, he'd come in every, every week 
and show me some new package, some new language, some, you know, something else that was just the hottest thing in town and it made everything else stupid. And I would tease him about it. He had a real good sense about it. And sometimes I'd, I'd even point it out to him. He'd go, yeah, you're right. You know, like we're just chasing things. But I, I told him, I said, man, one day I am going to release Wheel.js. And with Wheel.js, you know, I have like a whole site. It will say, well, you know, we're no, we're no longer going to add two numbers by putting number plus number. Instead, we're going to use the add function. And we're not going to subtract numbers by using you doing number minus number. We're going to use the subtract function. And for everything that you do in JavaScript today, you know, instead, we're going to have the better way to do it in Wheel.js. And it was kind of funny because when I put that out, and, and then especially with the way that React has been going, I said, everything will be a function. Everything will be a function because, you know, if it's not a function, it's stupid. And everything, you know, it's functional programming. So everything has to be a, a function. And I, I put that article out and I'm actually going to pull it up because because your your listeners would would appreciate this. Talking about the comments of this. Oh, man. Uh, uh, so, I, you know, I put this up and some guy uh, comments here. And he says, oh, dang, it's not, I don't think it's not there anymore. But basically he was saying, he was, first of all, he starts pointing out, well, you know, this part doesn't really work. And I'm not sure why you chose to do it this way. This uh, the 42 thing? Uh, yeah, and, and, and then, yeah, exactly, exactly. It, it, that doesn't make any sense. And, and, and finally, then he gets halfway through his own comment and he goes, Oh, I feel like an idiot. I just realized that this whole thing is a joke, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you know, at first he, he was, he felt compelled to jump in and tell me why, you know, no, that's not going to work. And you totally need to do it a different way. And then he's like, okay, I get it. Never mind. <laughs> and at, at the very end of the article, cause I, I, I put it here, uh, you know, I have like an FAQ section, uh, and it says, uh, you know, FAQ, if Wheel.js just allows me to do all the same stuff that I could already do in core JavaScript, then why would I install an entirely new package just to do the same thing? The FAQ answer is, you really haven't been paying any attention to JavaScript over the last 15 or so years, have you? <laughs> That's awesome. I saw somebody said something about Golang as well. I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Um, I personally don't know that so with Golang, uh, the, the interesting thing is they offer concurrency and speed, and those are the, the big things. Of course, the, the sacrifice that you make is you have to learn a new uh, language, you have to learn a new ecosystem, and honestly, their ecosystem is not great as far as the infrastructure of it. You know, there's no, mm -hmm. there's no package manager by default. There's no like, place that you can go to find packages, and, and maybe some people like that. There's no centralization of, of the packages for the ecosystem, but I, I personally think it's kind of a weakness. Uh, but the interesting thing about it is that it, it offers superior performance and multi-threading in an ecosystem largely where people are scare, scaling horizontally. Like you said earlier, spin up 55 of them, add a load balancer, there you go. It doesn't matter that the JavaScript server isn't very good or it doesn't perform super well. You know, if it can only service 25,000 users, that's okay. We only have 100,000, so we can just load balance it between four. You know, maybe we could rewrite it in Golang and and support all 100,000 on one but then we have to teach everybody golang well first of all uh, full disclosure I, i've not done golang or rust 
you know, some of I mean, they sound very interesting, but I, I don't want to make it sound like I, I think I'm an expert on these. But I do think it's, uh, you know, it's interesting because you see these, if you've been around as long as I have, you see these, these pendulum swings go back and forth where on one hand you have like this, these languages that are, for lack of a better term, kind of a pain in the ass to use and they're very structured and they require, you know, a lot of forethought and tinkering and memory management and such. And then the pendulum starts swinging the other way where people are like, ah, I, I want to be free of the shackles of all that crap from my old language. And then they start moving to things that have more freedom or even have, having almost no rules. You know, it seems like you got to do whatever you want. And then things start kind of going back the other way. And I'm actually describing my life as a developer right now. So I started as a, at a Java shop. And even then, I knew intuitively that the heaviness and verbosity just wasn't the way to do things. Mm -hmm. And so I switched to JavaScript, and I've been like, oh, man, the freedom here is amazing. And now I'm learning TypeScript and getting into that. And I'm like trying to learn you know, things like Rust and, and getting back into compiled languages. So yeah, I'm definitely doing exactly that. And, and, and I bring up the, you know, those, those different seasons, if you will, because not to say that none of them are right or wrong. Uh, and Rust... You know, from what I've looked at, looks incredibly interesting. It also is not like JavaScript. It's not like you're just going to crank out a few lines of code and look at this. I can put it up on a website. Um, yeah, not, it's also not something where you learn it in a day and right. you're like, okay, now I know everything I need to know to build stuff. And so, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with having a, a language that you can learn in a day. There's nothing wrong with having a language that, that takes you a week or a month or whatever to even get your head around. One of the big things themes that i have i think that goes throughout most of my blogs is that you know you asked about like the future of development my my biggest problem right now with development that i rail against as this gray beard is that there seems to be little sense amongst all of the, all of the development community that there is not a wrong tool or a right tool but there is the right tool for the job so an analogy I keep going back to in my blogs is that, you know, if I showed up and said, I'm going to build your house and you thought, great, I hope, you know, he really knows how to build houses. And then I show you my tool belt, tool belt and it has a hammer in it. And you say, well, where are the rest of your tools? And I say, I, I don't need the rest of my tools. I got this hammer. And you're like, well, you know, what are you going to do with the plumbing or the windows? It's like, man, I, I have been using this hammer for 20 years. I know how to use this hammer. It's the best damn tool there is. You might say, well, how, well, what about a screwdriver? It's like, no, screwdrivers are stupid. You don't want to use a screwdriver. That's a dumb tool. That's an old tool. We're going to use a hammer. Well, I'm going to assume that you wouldn't hire me to build your house. <laughs> I'm assuming yeah, you'd probably, probably tell yeah. me to go away. But in, in technology, in application development, I feel like too many times this is exactly what we do. So, you know, the new guy comes in and he says, well, why are we just doing JavaScript? You know, oh, we should do uh, TypeScript. Uh, and, I, you know, I have my, my plus, you know, I have my, my feelings pro and con about TypeScript, but this isn't about whether I like it or not. And if I sit there and I say, well, no, this, we use JavaScript. That's what we do. That's our tool. Well, that's, that's a pretty stupid and ignorant statement. It's, it, it's limiting. Uh, it, it would also be equally stupid to just say, hey, we're just going jump to jump to TypeScript because... You know, because it's the new hotness or because uh, there's a lot of articles about it or because I went to a conference and someone got up and spoke about it. I mean, that would be stupid. It'd be stupid to cling to the old technology. It would be stupid to blindly jump to the new technology. Ideally, I know that 
there are a lot of other factors that go into this. But in a perfect world, for every time you, you need to make a new technology decision, you would sit down with as level ahead as you can and make a decision on the merits for, I don't know, do we, you know, I hate Redux, but if someone says, hey, I think on this new project, Redux is what we should use. I'm not going to say I wouldn't have resistance to it, but I'd listen to them. You know, I'd say, okay, you know, why do you think that Redux is the right tool here? Because For maybe sure. I'm wrong. I think the, the interesting thing will be to see, I give it about two years before they re-release uh, re Go as Golang 2, but it's actually implemented in Dart and it's totally <laughs> not like a clear upgrade path. It's kind of the Google way nowadays. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. Uh, so, I mean, what, what else is on your mind, man? What, do you, what have you been feeling really passionate about lately? Do you got anything uh, you want to chat about? I don't know. I mean, I just, uh, well, <laughs> yeah, I got all kinds of stuff that's been passionate, but not really about app dev, just about George Floyd and about COVID and about politics and all kinds of crap. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, we, we do, honestly, the, the reason that I created this podcast was in light of everything that was happening with, with George Floyd and sort of the social climate of America right now, um, I just... You know, I was kind of reflecting on how I got into development and the fact that my community helped me a lot in getting there and uh, just really wanting to do the same and, and give back. And then I also did some research, you know, who's out there trying to do this? Like who's out there showing people what being a software developer is actually really like. And for the most part, it's, I mean, first of all, fuck tech lead. I don't know if you know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Completely fuck that guy. But also there's a, there's a bunch of people that are doing like the Instagram coder thing where they... You know, you basically watch these videos of these people. They're like, this is what it's like to be, you know, in a day in the life of a of an engineer in uh, Silicon Valley making $190,000 a year at 20. Um, and that's kind of what people see, you know. And I, I just want to make sure that that's not what people think it's actually like. See, and, and I'm a big enough smartass that if I was going to do something like that, I would purposely fill it full of a bunch of junk. Like, you know, I'd, I'd have a bunch of beer around me all day and I'd be watching you know, uh, YouTube videos. And I would say, yeah, this is how I'm making a quarter million a year writing code. And people would be like, wow, that guy is making all that money. Just sitting around drinking beer and watching YouTube. And then of course it would all be bullshit, but I would still be trolling and laughing at it the whole time. <laughs> For sure. All right, man. Unfortunately, my, uh, my job is actually kind of breathing down my neck about this PR build that failed. So I better get back <laughs> to it. Um, I, it was a pleasure talking with you. I hope that you'll come on again soon and we can maybe we can talk about a little bit more of the uh, current events and social climate and stuff. It doesn't have to all be related to tech. Sure, sure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you uh, for having me. Awesome, man. Thanks again. All right. Talk to you soon. Hey, folks. Once again, I'd like to thank you for sticking your way through the episode. Hopefully you enjoyed this conversation with me and Adam Davis. Tomorrow, I will actually be interviewing... Albin Denoyle, one of the co-founders of Sketchfab. So please make sure to look out for that. I'll be doing post-production on that as quickly as I possibly can and trying to get it out there because I'm very excited about that conversation. Hopefully you've enjoyed the content thus far. And as always, if you need to reach out to me, please hit me up on Twitter at T-Y-T-R underscore dev. All right, this is Ty signing out. Thank you.